Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Riesmadel. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Klein. And today on the Radio Survivor program, a radio program and a podcast where we cover community radio, college radio, podcasting when it serves community. And community television. Community television, public access television. Um, I, I came up with a new tagline last week. Uh, we nerd out on the margins of the American media landscape. Wow. How do you like it? And the reason why it's the margins is not, we don't fetishize the fact that it's small. It just so happens that the best things these days on the media landscape are happening. Get squeezed out to the margins. Yeah, that great people are still doing important work way out on the margins of the media landscape. And that is all germane to today's topic because we're going to be speaking with Professor Christopher Terry, who is our friend and expert on the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. Listeners to Radio Survival will know that we have Christopher Terry on, oh, five times, six times a year to talk about- Well, lately it's been a lot because we have uh, an exceptionally active Federal Communications Commission with an exceptionally- I don't even know what the right adjective is to use to describe uh, (laughs) activist judges, commissioner, the chairman of the FCC, who has a strong deregulatory agenda. He's moving fast. That and that he is ramming through with nearly unprecedented speed and force. And yet nothing is new under the sun. You know, this Trump FCC, as we like to say, under Ajit Pai, Ajit Pai may have well been the head of the FCC under a Jeb Bush presidency um is not uh, reinventing the wheel from but what a, he is doing is, is the kind of force he's doing it in a very trumpian fashion i he's, would say he's taken a few uh style style guides from the trump textbook but the momentum and the direction of his plan is uh is a long time coming it's a long time coming this has been certainly something which uh you know a long line of reasoning within the FCC and within the United States government has been happening. Deregulation, deregulation, yeah. deregulation. Allowing for larger and larger companies to own more and more uh, media properties, controlling in ways that are so fun to talk about in the minutiae, which we're not going to do today, controlling the message or at least the market of uh, what gets to our eyeballs and ear holes here in, in the United States. And it's not all just... Um, we're not talking about the big, grand, sweeping, large picture of how these media consolidations have changed uh, what we get to listen to and how we access the airwaves here in the United States. There's actually breaking news and information today. That's right. So that's what we're going to talk with uh, Professor Terry about. He's from the University of Minnesota, where he teaches media law and ethics. And we are going to tackle local TV ownership. And we'll talk a little bit more afterwards why we think this is important so that you can kind of put this in context. I'm going to say something hyperbolic, though, and allow for the details of the conversation to smooth out what may be a mistake. But I like the bold headlines. This is a huge media merger allowing for a giant new company to control um, what is essentially a majority of television. And especially television, local news. Local television news. Now, there are reasons why there are some details that will um, uh, make it more complex than what I just said. But what I just said is essentially not wrong. But this is in the offing, and there are moves afoot to apply the brakes. And uh, 
that is indeed what we're going to talk about with Professor Terry. On the line is Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota here to help us understand what is going on with the Federal Communications Commission right now. We're going to be talking about media ownership regs. Chris, uh, back in November, the FCC passed some new media ownership rules. Can you give us the quick thumbnail of what these new rules say? Sure. What the FCC did was they took an order from August of 2016, which did not change any of the existing media ownership rules. And they released a new rule, new set of rules on an order from reconsideration that changes the local television rule, the newspaper broadcast cross ownership rule, the joint services agreement rule, and, um, potentially allows for the Sinclair merger to go forward. And so uh, just to kind of break this down a little bit, so with regard to local television rule, what, what, what is the substance of that change? Um, they're allowing a single owner to own two of the top four stations in a market now. Previously, you could own two television stations at the local level but you couldn't have two that were in the top four, and there had to be eight independent voices left. Both of those prohibitions and structures on the local television rule go away, and what you have now is a situation in which a single owner can own two of the top four stations, and the top four rule, of course, is associated with the four major broadcast networks, NBC, CBS, ABC, and Fox. So one one company could now own an ABC and a CBS affiliate in the same in the same city. Right. It uh, it changes the metric on the top performing stations in the city. And the reason why this is important for this Sinclair merger, which is uh, Sinclair taking over Tribune companies' television stations, why is that important? In many markets, Sinclair and Tribune were competitors. And when this deal, when this new rule would go through, it would allow Sinclair and Tribune to retain the stations in places where Sinclair and Tribune both had one of the top four stations. In other markets where we're not talking about one of the top four stations, the removal of the eight voices test will also allow Sinclair to keep many stations. It would be required under current rules to uh, divest itself of to approve the merger. And can you explain just briefly what that eight voices test is? What does what did that mean? What does it mean? Well, it's a, a legacy of a few media ownership proceedings, but what it essentially did was ensure that there had to be eight independent owners operating in the market for consolidation to occur. So it's essentially the local television ownership rule works essentially two ways. There's the eight voices test. There has to be eight operational stations each being run separately but it also had the top two prohibition where you couldn't own two of the top performing stations in the market so it worked both ways so the idea is it was to preserve some diversity of voices so that it was not that in an through your television, your local television channels, you did not have dominance by just a couple of companies that was sort of the intent of it all yeah i mean the concern, of course, was economic-based in that um, 
if someone were to acquire the top two performing stations in a market, they could leverage that to uh, make it anti-competitive against their competitors for advertising prices, for example. Right, right. Because you by uh, you know locking up a lot of the market, that gives you much more market power. You could you can set prices, you can lower them and drive drive rates down. You can you can drive them up different ways, and it becomes both difficult for your competitors as well as for people who buy advertising, like car dealerships and such. <laughs> Car dealerships being the, the key one, is still a huge advertiser in local television. As anyone who watches local news will see, it's almost all car dealership ads and furniture, I suppose. But um, sort of getting back on track with this. So the FCC passed these rules back in November. And as I recall, it was a party line vote. It was the uh, three Republicans on the commission uh, against the two Democrats. Um, the Democrats did not vote for this change. To allow for greater... Consolidation. Media ownership consolidation. In local television. In local television. And what has happened now, I understand, is that uh, there has been a filing uh, to stay this change, to prevent it from taking effect. Tell us what's going on. Okay. So the rules were published about a month ago in the Federal Register, which means that they were about to become active. But the media ownership policy and all of the associated rules with that are still held under a remand in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Under the Prometheus Radio Project cases, the first being in 2004, there was a decision in 2011, and there was a decision in early 2016, none of which the agency has responded to. So Prometheus Radio Project, at the head of what's considered the citizen petitioners in the case, a uh, coalition of groups interested in media ownership and media ownership policy, they filed a request to, in the Third Circuit to keep the FCC from actually implementing the rules while the lawsuit uh, over those rules works itself out. And as part of that, they have not only asked for a stay, but they have argued that the FCC has so neglected its responsibilities and obligations, not only to the public, but to the orders that the court has handed it in the past. They've asked for what's known as a special master. It's a relatively rare sanction. But what the special master does is the court appoints one. And then that person essentially is an arbitrator that oversees the FCC implementing previous decisions. This is a relatively rare uh, situation that you see, but it does suggest that Prometheus isn't going to take this one lying down and is going to fight to the to the extremes to see this one through. Okay, so let me make sure I'm, I'm understanding what's, what's going on here. So as, as we've talked many times here on, on this show, what's happened over the course of the last uh, two decades pretty much is that uh, there's been a, 
a number of fumbles with regard to media ownership uh, regulation at the FCC, where over the course of many attempts to loosen media ownership rules, the FCC has basically failed to demonstrate that they've got evidence on their side, that that's in the public interest or even in, in economic interest, uh, what they want to do. And they've been challenged in court. Uh, and in this case, what's most important by uh, a coalition of, uh, of public interest groups led by the Prometheus Radio Project. Um, and, it, and this is, uh, challenge has gone to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Third Circuit Court has said time and again, these rule changes have not been evidenced. They've, they've not been demonstrated to do what you say they're going to do. And you've not provided enough evidence to say that they should go forward and sends them back to the FCC and the FCC for all intents and purposes has been non-responsive. That's sort of my, my gloss on this. And here the FCC goes again this past November, passes new media ownership rules with regard to local television and uh, the public interest community in, uh, led by Prometheus is calling foul saying, hold on here. You've not answered the remands. The, you've not answered the court, which has sent these rules back to you time and again. And here you are, drafting new rules that uh, you know a scene double down on the old doubling rules. down basically on on the on the trajectory if nothing else with rules that seem only the trajectory of of uh, deregulation and losing yeah. media diversity losing as far as ownership diversity. goes and 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 with rules that seem only designed to basically allow a particular merger to happen seem designed specifically for a particular merger to happen so they're going to the third circuit court of appeals and saying you know, crying foul and saying this is so egregious that we have to assign uh, a, a master, master, a special master. Is this a, is this a lawyer? Is this a judge? Who is this special master? Well, the special master is someone that the court appoints, and it doesn't happen very often. Um, it's hard to tell who the court would appoint in a situation like this. They would need somebody with some policy chops and a legal background uh, to do it in this specific case. But I mean, this is a an odd, well, that's not the right word, an uncommon request yeah. by it. When when was the yeah. last time uh, the United States saw a special master, and this is oh, just well, for they, the FCC, they, or is this something, what are we... Uh, I believe it is the first request for the FCC. Um, okay. I did a little check, and I couldn't find another one. It doesn't mean it, it's never been requested. I, I could find no example of it being implemented. But the evidence issue is really important, and it's part of the argument that Prometheus is making in court right now. In August of 2016, the agency under Tom Wheeler finally got off its duff and answered the essentially unanswered question about what they were going to do about media ownership. Yeah, and when you say the agency under Tom Wheeler, you're referring to the FCC under Barack Obama's uh, chairman of the FCC, Tom Wheeler. Right. In that decision, which was a decision that had been pending roughly since 2008, um, the agency decided not to make any substantive changes to media ownership. Then, shortly after Donald Trump won the election in 2016, on December 1st, the National Association of Broadcasters and a few other interveners uh, filed a request for a reconsideration of that August order. Now, the August order was pending a court hearing from an earlier Prometheus lawsuit, 
But it, as soon as it became apparent that there was going to be a Republican-led uh, FCC, industry petitioners got in there and asked the FCC to throw out their August decision and come up with the decision that they ultimately came up with in November. And now what the Prometheus group is saying through their legal filings is, okay, we're still, we, we never got an airing on the 2016 decision and the 2017 decision is worse we want you to stop this from being implemented as the court had done in both 2003 with the media ownership rules that time and then 2008 until a ruling can be made on whether or not these rules are valid. And their request for a special master is tied to that but is entirely separate, pointing out that here we are seven years after the second Prometheus decision and the Federal Communications Commission has still not taken on a remand order to develop a workable minority and women ownership policy uh, as part of its larger media ownership structure. And what Prometheus is essentially arguing in practical terms is the FCC can't be trusted to be left alone to do this. Stay the order. Let's have it out in court. But what we're asking for now is not the court to send this back to the FCC. We can't trust them to take care of it. We had to drag them into court to get them to restart the process as it was. What we're asking for now is someone to be appointed to oversee the FCC and hold them to some sort of schedule for to commit to the remands that are already standing. We're on the line with Professor Christopher Terry. We're talking about the Federal Communications Commission and the latest a uh, round of back and forth over um, loosening of media ownership rules, which if you've been paying attention to news out of the FCC over the generations, it's it's all just echoes. Christopher Terry, can you explain what's at stake here with the, with the most recent news? Well, what's at stake is the timing. Um, if the court doesn't grant the stay that Prometheus is seeking... What will happen is, is on Wednesday, February 7th, the new rules take effect. And obviously the court battle is going to take longer than Wednesday of uh, this week to uh, sort out. The problem is once the rules are in effect, lots of mergers can go through. In fact, some of the people in acting in support of the FCC are saying, we're literally sitting here waiting for the rules to go into effect. Yeah. If, you know, if they don't go into effect on Wednesday, we're going to be harmed by the delay. So what the court is, what, what's at stake here is potentially making the entire case moot. If the court doesn't grant the stay, what would happen is, is that the rules would go into effect on Wednesday. And while the legal battle works out, which will probably take the better part of this year to sort out, the cats lots out of, the of mergers... Back. Lots of mergers are going to be passed, and it will be hard to reverse them after that occurs. So you're, you're talking about Wednesday, February 7th of 2018. Uh, these mergers are already going to begin, which, which for many listeners might already be uh, in the past. We're recording yes. today on uh, February 2nd, 2018, on Friday. And uh, also, I understand that uh, the National Association of Broadcasters, the, the nation's largest broadcast lobby, as well as Sinclair, have also uh, filed to join in uh, this lawsuit. Isn't that correct, Christopher? 
Yes, um, they liked what the FCC did in November, so they're actually arguing on the side of the FCC and upholding the rules that the FCC passed. What's interesting is about two years ago now, in April of 2016, both the citizen petitioners led by Prometheus, but also the deregulatory petitioners led by the NAB were essentially in court together, uh, although on diametrically opposed positions, uh, essentially asking the Third Circuit to mandate that the FCC make a decision one way or the other. What's different now is that the NAB and the groups associated with the NAB got what they wanted out of the deal and as such are now supporting the FCC's decision. So it's really become the citizen petitioners in the Third Circuit against the industry groups who are in favor of the rule changes, as well as the FCC that made that, those decisions. Now, I'm going to, now, you know, we're sitting here waiting to see one, what the Third Circuit Court of Appeals will do. But also, it's my understanding that the FCC hasn't filed its answer to Prometheus's request for a stay as of yet, at, as we uh, record here on February 2nd. That's correct. Uh, the As we record this, they have about an hour now to formally respond to the request for a stay. And assuming that they're quick on the draw on that here in the next hour or so, uh, we may have a decision on the stay as soon as Monday of next week. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask you to put on your uh, put on your wizard's hat for a second here. How likely is it that the Third Circuit would not grant this stay? And um, how would they I, justify that? I'm skeptical that the circuit wouldn't grant the stay. But given the way the Federal Communications Commission has uh, angered the Third Circuit over the last, uh, well, 14 years, it's entirely possible what the Third Circuit might do in response to this, as they suggested they would do in April of 2016, is to just make all the media ownership rules go away, essentially tear down the entire structure. I think that the less likely of the two situations, I mean, this, this is an administrative agency decision. Administrative agency decisions that are challenged go to judicial review. And the timing here leans heavily in favor of the stay. I would be very surprised, regardless of what the FCC's position on the stay is, if the Third Circuit doesn't grant them that stay. The, the last action from the court formally was an order to the FCC to respond by 3 p.m. Eastern today, Friday. This is Radio Survivor, the Sound of Strong Communities. My name is Eric Klein. I'm here with my co-host, Paul Reese-Mendel. We're on the line with the friend of the show, Professor Christopher Terry, talking about the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, and the latest news allowing, or possibly allowing, for further media consolidation. And Christopher, we've, we've willingly crawled deep into the weeds today to talk about this, you know, the latest breaking news as far as this... Um, uh, Sinclair and Tribune merger, or at least that seems to be what's at stake. I'm wondering if, um, if you forgive the metaphor, if I can, like, uh, we're in the weeds, and now I'd like to, like, launch a drone or, like, let go of a dove or a crow to fly up and give us kind of a bird's eye view now of um, what, it, what is all this, or at least, like, a, 
Like maybe um, what does it? I mean, what does it mean for your local media consumer? What does it? What does it mean for yeah. for local media consumer for your local media economy? You know what? What will this mean to somebody who's in in Definitely. Omaha or Milwaukee? Right. Why should or I care Dallas? about the Sinclair and Tribune Company's uh, financial stake? Well, you should care about it for two major reasons. One, uh, what we'll see here is a nationalization of the content production model uh, for television much in the way we saw for radio, in that you're going to lose your local news and instead you're going to have news produced for a national audience that's uh, repurposed at the local level. And there's a model for this. It's what Clear Channel and Cumulus did with their local radio stations when they automated them after they were allowed to consolidate. And what you saw there is you lost a lot of local control in the uh, at the local level, you lost a lot of local control at the local level, but you also lost a lot of locally produced and locally focused programming. Right. So we're we're talking about the quality of uh, our evening news products and our our morning news uh, coming out of local places, each individual uh, city. And 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 I want to. I think that's an interesting uh, point. The comparison to uh, Clear Channel now, iHeartMedia, and Cumulus, because. Um, as I understand it, iHeart Media right now is on the cusp of declaring bankruptcy. Isn't that correct? Both Cumulus and Clear Channel announced in the last 10 days that they're essentially both going to go bankrupt. Clear Channel, or excuse me, iHeart Media uh, made an announcement on Thursday saying that they were 30 days from insolvency. And at the same time that they did that, they refused to make a mandated $106 million bond payment. Huh. Uh, the company is so far in the red that there's almost no way. Bonds in the company are at about 14.5%, essentially junk bonds at this point. So um, the very little chance that the situation resolves itself, even as it uh, falls apart. But iHeartMedia has sort of been the poster child for this for a long time, but Cumulus now has also sort of fallen into the same trap that uh, when the consolidation happened, so much money was spent to acquire all of these stations that uh, there was never a thought on paying back the bills, so to speak. The difference here with Sinclair is Sinclair has the cash to make this deal go through. And for as powerful as Clear Channel ever was, uh, they owned about 10% of all radio station, commercial radio stations in the United States at their peak. Uh, they were, through their content arm, providing content to about a half of all, radio, all commercial radio stations. Sinclair's in another boat. If the merger for Sinclair is allowed to proceed, uh, Sinclair will have access to 73.5% of the national television audience. That's almost twice the current legal limit a legal limit handed down by Congress. Wow. And one of the things that is occurring sort of in the backdrop of this Prometheus case is that the FCC also launched a proposed rulemaking process uh, within the last 10 days that would is going to examine the national television ownership cap, the 39% limit, as well as re- looking again at the UHF discount, which then counts the audience in an area at half for stations that are in the UHF band. 
At one point, they made a lot of sense because UHF over-the-air analog stations were lower quality. But in the digital TV transition, essentially all stations are in the UHF band now, essentially rendering that rule totally invalid at this point. But to get the Sinclair deal through, it's very clear to the commission that, or at least appears clear to the commission, that the Prometheus case is going to get tied up for a while. So they're taking another route to try and get that deal through. And that's what this new proposed rulemaking process is all about. Christopher Terry, I just have to repeat something that you just said, that this deal, uh, that the the FCC uh, leadership is currently, um, uh, the momentum is to allow for the deal. And there's a court battle that appears to be, uh, well, I mean, on this day that we're recording on February 2nd is up in the air in a, in a really significant place. And yet the, the merger that is about to take place, if, if the powerful interests get their way with the Sinclair and Tribune merger, would allow for one company to control 75% of the television, of the over-the-air television market in the United States? Well, that number is a little deceptive. It's actually only 73%. But how that number works is each television market makes up a certain percentage of the national television audience. Right, like cities, basically. Cities. Or urban, so, urban metro areas. So New York and Los Angeles and Chicago are significant, you know, 7 or 8% of the national television audience. Right. The way the 39% cap works is you can own as many stations in as many different places as you want as long as you don't have access to more than 39% of the national audience. So it's access, not control. Yeah, it's not control. It's access to. Now, that 39% uh, was actually a, a rule set by Congress while the first Prometheus case was in the courts to allow the current Fox uh, own O&Os, the owned and operated stations by the Fox network, to exist after Fox had bought New World Communications. Um, Commissioner O'Reilly, who's one of the Republicans, doesn't actually believe that the FCC has the authority to change that rule. I kind of agree with him on that. Since Congress which, was the one that said it. Right. They essentially told the FCC that they had to implement that rule. And I kind of agree with Commissioner O'Reilly. He is kind of nerdy on that that sort of point. But that's why the rulemaking includes both approaches, right? Raising the cap, do we have that authority? Or can we just simply re-implement the UHF discount? And um, that would also allow this merger to go through. And Christopher Terry, do I understand things correctly that what you just, because I'm learning from you as we speak, that this Third Circuit Court of Appeals uh, stay that the Prometheus Radio Project is seeking to, to stop the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, from moving forward with allowing the merger, that all of that could be moot on Wednesday of next week, the merger might proceed anyway. On Wednesday, uh, February 7th, which might, might be the week that our listeners are hearing this uh, Radio Survivor program. It, things could already be um, moving very quickly. Well, the Sinclair, is sort of a, the Sinclair merger is sort of a two-pronger for the FCC. The rules that the FCC passed uh, down in November that are being challenged by Prometheus allow for part of the Sinclair merger to go through. 
especially in the places where Sinclair would ultimately end up with two of the top two stations. But Sinclair would also still be up against this 39% cap. That would have to be modified either by re-implementing the UHF discount or by removal of the 39% cap for the deal to go forward. That is why the Sinclair clock, the FCC uses a regulation clock. It's essentially a shot clock for the number of days uh, for the review. It was actually paused with just a handful, under 10 days left on the clock while these issues are pending and working themselves out, both in the courts and at the commission. Uh, Professor Christopher Terry of the University of Minnesota explained to us uh, the FCC's uh, media ownership rules with regard to local television and how uh, they have been proposed to be changed, may go into effect, and are being challenged by public interest groups. As you explain all these little facets, all these little rule changes the weeds. that are being proposed to uh, to make ostensibly this merger of the Sinclair Company broadcast stations and Tribune Company broadcast stations go through, it sounds like so much grease is being put on the skids here that it's. it seems to me, in my watching the Federal Communications Commission for pretty much a generation, that this is unprecedented. Like, I, I can't really recall a circumstance in which I have seen so much grease dumped on the skids that seems ostensibly to make one particular merger happen. Is, is my recollection wrong or, or is this true? Well, it's uh, the scale of this merger makes it seem differently, but it's not unprecedented. The NBC Comcast merger was also skidded through on some questionable proceedings. And that one's back in the discussion right now because the seven year conditions, which were applied to Comcast for regulatory approval to absorb the NBC properties just expired. So at that point, uh, Commissioner Meredith Baker was essentially stamping her feet on the floor as the commission was hemming and hawing about finally approving the deal. And she she was busy saying how it was taking too much time and she couldn't believe that her colleagues were going through this review and they, you know, why was it taking so much time? Shortly after she approved, she voted, she cast a vote to approve the merger. She went and became their chief lobbyist too. So chief lobbyist for uh, Comcast for Comcast. Yes. So, you know, there's the old capture theory that one of the problems with the FCC is it's too close with the people that it regulates. And there's a lot of people who are pointing at, uh, the Sinclair merger and saying it's a classic example of that theory because of, uh, commissioner Pi. Well, it just seems like all of the decisions that are being made right now are being made to sort of shepherd this deal through. Right. Professor Christopher Terry, Professor of Media Law and Ethics at the University of Minnesota, we really appreciate you taking some time to educate us. Anytime, guys. Always such a pleasure to have Professor Christopher Terry on to explain to us what just happened at the FCC. And what is happening. And what is happening now. I always like to tell listeners to Radio Survivor that if you want like a multi-part crash course in the Federal Communications Commission over both uh, this generation, you know, 
we've gone back to 1996, which is a very important year for media policy in the United States. I think we've gone back a little bit farther with Professor Christopher Terry on past episodes. Uh, the first time we spoke with Professor Christopher Terry on the Radio Survivor program, we, we got personal because uh, the first part of his career as a journalist was working in local news radio, uh, sort of like being on a dinosaur farm, I guess. Being a being a dinosaur rancher in America, local news radio is dead. Uh, not we shouldn't write the obituary, but it certainly it is. Um, it, it, yeah, but it, it it it. I would say that I don't like the dinosaur metaphor. Yeah, that's a mistake. Right. It's 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 almost more like buffalo. Right. Uh, why the, the buffalo did not go extinct or near extinct? They had tiny brains, of, and they because couldn't... of the, uh, the 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 simple forces yeah, of the this. of the environment. Right? They were systematically executed, systematically hunted down. They were targeted for for reasons both uh, for uh, sport, for profit, and for for profit. Right? Yeah. And, and it didn't have to be this way. It did not have to be this way. And, and so, you know, while ostensibly, you know, our show is about community media and often we focus very much on audio, radio, podcasting, um, we talk about what's happening in television because we are still concerned about where and how we receive information, vital information about our communities and, and about, about the world. And so many people still receive this information via television, it's, via local yeah. broadcast television, you know, in their morning news, their evening news, their late news. And who controls that and how it is produced is important and has effects on communities. So even if you're somebody who says, well, you know, I, I only listen to my local NPR affiliate and, or I only listen to community radio and I don't really watch television news. Um, that television news still has an effect on your community. One, because lots of people are viewing it and are watching it or to get news about what happens at city hall, to get news about what happens in emergency circumstances and, and all sorts of vital information that really rarely gets reported elsewhere, especially yeah. with the death, the, the near death of radio news. There may be no yeah. uh, and, commercial radio reporters and print left. Journalism, and, and print journalism. And television newsroom. So it's a, it's a... It all really affects us. They're not and, dinosaurs. And those changes that happen in your community can affect your ability to communicate and receive information. It's all tied in together. We are all in this together yeah. is effectively the, the argument... Uh, I, I want to make here and why we're paying attention and, and why we care. And it's, and, and, you know, one thing about the Sinclair Tribune merger that has uh, many people, uh, especially in the political left upset is that the management of Sinclair is very pro Trump and has yes, a demonstrable fact. Yes. And distributes uh, these commentaries to the local Sinclair stations in support of Trump policies. Former Trump administration officials or campaign people, I believe, are employed making these commentaries. Right. So people are certainly upset about that. So there's an actual content part of this, but that's, that is certainly something which to be concerned about and to watch, <laughs> it's but the, not but, an insignificant fact. But the bigger point though, yeah. of course, is that, in terms of the consolidation, as Chris pointed out to us, what we risk is basically is sucking out all of the, the, the oxygen and the lifeblood out of these local TV station newsrooms as they are consolidated to, to jack up profits. 
like controlling costs. And so now maybe your weather person will not be local and there will be fewer local reporters. And, and so essentially what, what, what you'll be getting in, in Buffalo is kind of the same news you may get in Cincinnati, which may be the same news that you're getting in Boise, uh, you know, with a couple of local stories, but the rest of it basically a national package. And so whether or not that also contains uh, politically charged uh, commentaries that support one party over another, uh, the net effect is less information, less news, uh, which means you're less information to help make decisions about things like on local issues, whether you have to head to the polls or whether you're who you're voting for, for your city council or for your uh, state legislature. Uh, it, it's a sort of slow and, you know, rounding off of information and people really have over time relied upon their local TV stations for this, you know, and as much as many of us can sit there and say, yes, we've seen the decline and we can see that it is of lower and lower in quality because there's less and less investment. It doesn't mean that it still hasn't played an important role in many communities. It's so interesting because sort of uh, such a huge chunk of the shared mental framework of what goes on at a low power FM or a community radio station is um, uh, about like a mainstream point of view versus uh, what uh, a marginalized point of view. And to think that what is going to be going on in the mainstream lane of the United States media market could get so much, it's more dumb content not less so it really is it's gonna it's a continuing of a trend that that informs what goes on here in the margins of community media um and i mean i guess there's an argument to be made right like you're saying like who cares it was already not so good right right exactly it's easy to be cynical about the whole but if the entire concept of uh public interest media or that there is a public interest that, right. that, that that broadcasters in exchange for what is for all intents and purposes, a free resource, an exclusive license to broadcast, right. To use this spectrum and, and to send these signals out, uh, you know, is in exchange for serving the public interest and to see that notion continuously kind of of perverted eroded eroded to becoming not that there is a public interest in having news and information but rather that it may be simply only an economic interest yeah. that that advertising be available to local advertisers made obsolete and quaint at this yeah. point like i don't think i don't think the idea of public interest media uh, is foremost in most people's minds when they think about Television, right. radio, it, Again, and it's the easy to be cynical, but let's just reflect on the fact that this is uh, a recent phenomenon of one of uh, only about 25 or 30 years old that this has been been drained, that lifeblood has been drained. And, and, and I think the, the point I always want to come back and make is that this is not inevitable. This is not just how things happen. Again, why I sort of fight against sort of a dinosaur metaphor. It's not inevitable that that localism and uh, public interest uh, serving broadcasting, even in the commercial sphere, should go away. Yeah. That it, 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 is, it has been decided. It has been decided think- as part of a program of, of deregulation uh, that has been, you know, sort of pursued sort of relentlessly. Uh, since the Reagan era, at the very least, if not longer before that, 
and 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 we're sort of you know we're sort of the lizard in in the in the water as the pan uh, heats up right uh, we, we've gotten used to it by 2018 now we're all even those of us who are critical get sort of used to the fact yeah. that yeah well that's just the way it is well, the, the- but it happened through specific means through specific actors who made it a plan it is not necessarily by design. It is not how media works. It's not simply how local yeah. television works. The dominant story it is It was that a chosen path. The dominant story is that, uh, you know, TV and the radio and print was chugging along, uh, doing, doing things the same way grandpa did it. And then the internet came along and uh, actively disrupted that business model and created a, a whole new world. Yeah, and and I mean certainly the internet changed a lot of things, but I mean that's why radio is dying, right? Well, radio in particular, right? When instead the counter narrative is that large companies like Cumulus and iHeartMedia, formerly Clear Channel, leveraged themselves, borrowed billions of dollars to suck up radio stations, to to seize large levels of control, without really having a great plan for how to do great radio that would be profitable because it was great radio. It worked. Instead, they chose a path in which they sucked out localism, right? They basically decided that we will homogenize the program. Which worked really well in the short term. In the short term, right, because all of a sudden the costs went down so profits could go up. But what also went away was audience, people, aren't stupid they know it when they hear their local station not doing yeah get bad and not doing what it used to do this and then at the same time they had they had new services they had internet radio eventually they had pandora they had satellite radio so they had other places to to go to with get their good ears. radio or yeah to get alternatives to get good radio so at the same time that uh that your clear channel decided to dumb down local radio better competing services popped up to take away listeners. Uh, so it's a two-pronged attack, but there was nothing natural about the fact, the, the, nothing natural about radio. It, it is really because of specific right. economic decisions made by the dominant companies, which are now, as we mentioned uh, in the interview with, with uh, Christopher Terry, which are now on the cusp of bankruptcy. And this is Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. With me is Eric Klein. Hello, and I everybody. am Paul Reesmanel. And if you want to learn more about anything we talk about here on the show, go to our website and read the show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 128. So if you definitely you know want to go and, and dig deep and get a little bit more understanding, we try to make that easy for you there. If you have any comments about anything you've heard on the program, please drop us a line. Send us an email to podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Uh, you can also tweet at us or find us on Facebook. We're Radio Survivor. We're the only ones. We're easy to find. And, we, and we'd love to hear from you. Uh, what's the state of local television in your area? Is, it, uh, is there good news? Have you seen a decline over the years? Uh, are you concerned that you'll see even more decline? We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Uh, coming up next week, yeah, we have some great shows coming up in the near future. Yeah, so we want to... It's something we previewed a couple of episodes ago. Uh, 
we talked about uh, attending PodCon in Seattle, Washington in December of last year, uh, where we heard, uh, where I went to see a, uh, a presentation about deaf accessibility in podcasting. Something that has been on the list of potential ideas for Radio Survivor programs since day zero. Yeah. And we finally... We found, found someone, someone else doing the work. Yeah, who's doing the work. So we will be talking with uh, Miri Josephs, who gave that presentation. Uh, who her, she herself, she is hearing impaired, and she'll be able to tell us more about. And she is a podcast fan. Yeah, and a huge podcast fan. So we'll be able to tell us more about uh, why podcasts should make themselves accessible, how they can make themselves accessible, and really help us uh, kind of think about. I think this audio media a little differently. I think it's easy to just sort of assume, well, if you can't hear, if you're deaf podcast, you just wouldn't be interested in podcasts. But of course that's not very fair on the one hand. There's and so much good stuff happening there's in so this much, medium, right? There's Why so would you exclude stuff? people? Exactly. Exactly. And so, and she has really great practical advice, right? Uh, you know, to help reach people who have a range of hearing ability, right? That, that it's not, you know, it's not a binary. It's not either you can hear or you can't. And uh, she's really going to help us uh, provide that advice because yeah, I think about that topic. when we think about community and we think about community media, we, we want to be sure that we're being as inclusive as, as we can uh, across all these different uh, media. And the great thing about podcasting uh, in particular whether it's a podcast of an existing radio show or a standalone podcast, of course, is that it's it's on demand, right? So it's something which, it's, you know, live radio goes out into the ether and is gone, right? And a podcast is something which is recorded and can be accessed over and over again, which also means you can do more with that media, uh, which means you have an opportunity to make it more accessible through all sorts of different means. Right. And so it's definitely, I'm um, very excited to have uh, this conversation. We're also in future episodes, we're working on following up with librarians from Vancouver, Canada to talk about podcasting and and libraries as well as media equity and yeah. digital equity. So exciting. Another another Radio Survivor favorite that we have uh that has always made light bulbs shoot off above my head every time that the whole idea that community radios and the and the world of community media and then these libraries that we're so lucky to have all over which are, the place. Which are community institutions. I yeah. mean, they're community media institutions. And, uh, and they're definitely, it's it's not Radio Survivor that invented the idea that there's a crossover. There's a lot oh, no. of really wonderful things happening, uh, I'm going to say, down at the grassroots. There's a lot I mean, of interesting combinations of libraries and community media happening Oh, the Fort already. Wayne Public Library in Indiana has a public access television station and now a low-power FM station. So we're going to be speaking with uh, some librarians from Vancouver, British Columbia in uh, future episodes of Radio Survivor who happen to uh, work at libraries that have podcasting facilities available to the public. The libraries are not just places to come uh, read magazines or and check out internet. books. Yeah, or surf the internet. But they're also, also going to help us understand have a how studio, how libraries in other ways besides just having a studio, yeah. are a great resource for people who want to make community media and make a community podcast. So exciting! And also, uh, recently, I wrote about uh, the 50th anniversary of the community radio station here in Portland, Oregon, KBOO, KBOO. 
And there's a wonderful exhibit celebrating that anniversary at the Oregon Historical Society Museum here in Portland. And I think it's important to celebrate these moments when a community media institution is able to cross a threshold of five decades. Because anyone who's been involved in a community radio station knows that's not simple. That's not easy. It took a lot of work and dedication and the willingness to stick with it. And, it, and the willingness for hundreds, if not thousands of people to stick with it. And so I think it's worthy of celebration. And, it, and I think it's great that uh, KABU had the opportunity to put on an exhibit at the museum with the Oregon Historical Society. So we'll be talking with folks from KABU and the Oregon Historical Society about both the history of KABU, but also uh, putting together this exhibit so that more people can have access to this history, understand it, and celebrate it. It is so mind-blowing to think about 50 years of one radio station being on the air. And, and just- especially one that a community radio station arguably has more right. people There's less repetition walk through the doors than just about any sort of radio yeah, station just- out there. So what other kind of institution in, a, in our place here in Portland, Oregon, could represent such a wide swath of of the people besides that live the here. library <laughs> yeah right but the library is full of uh isn't full of uh everyone's journals right the library is full of uh published books for the most part right here's, i never thought of it that way it's all these station. people's stories yeah told through music told and through word and interviews yeah so much so much wonderful stuff i can't wait to check out this this exhibit we're here to celebrate the history of community media as well as celebrate the future it's strong and it's necessary and you know we spend most of this show talking about uh, consolidation and the decrease in voices and diversity in local television and other sorts of media, while at the same time, community media grows and grows in diversity and there's more voices hitting the air, hitting the internet, uh, hitting cable television, um, and we're here to, to celebrate it. Yeah. We're here to encourage people to get involved. And preserving and, that space in the world it, where yeah. so that a young person can both uh, have the opportunity to hear it for the first time in their lives and then also be allowed to dream that I could make a thing my own way. I don't have to – it's just so – you know, it's just imagine – Imagine not having these spaces and then trying to invent them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, it's it's interesting that the little cracks in the pavement exist, but we've got God, to... God bless the grass. Exactly. And, we, we, and it does require uh, water and nourishment and sunlight to support it. And that's what we're about. And we encourage you, of course, to support your local community station. If you're listening to us on the radio, please support that station. We're also a uh, listener and reader supported enterprise to learn more about how you can help us out. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Support. And um, if you do listen to us as a podcast and you use an app like Stitcher or you use an app like Apple Podcasts, we do ask that you subscribe. Make sure you get the show every single week. We wouldn't want you to miss anything. And it helps other people find the show through the magic of algorithms. And um, if you can give us a rating or a review, we really do appreciate that as well. It does help us out a lot. And of course, you can always find the latest show at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Yeah, and one more plug to our listeners is if there is an idea for a program that you are interested in hearing uh, from us, a community radio, community podcasting, community media topic that that needs 
that needs an airing, please reach out to us. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for spending another hour with us. We really appreciate every single minute that you choose to listen to our humble little show. Have a good week, everybody.